Claudine Hemingway is a descendant of famed writer Ernest Hemingway. We bumped into each other at a party and decided to team up and dive deep into French history, but with a twist, by bringing a spotlight to those lesser-known creatives in France. This is History with a Hemingway. Welcome back, guys. I'm back with Claudine, and today we are starting a multi-part series about the Mona Lisa. Now, everyone knows the Mona Lisa, and if you know nothing about art, you know the name the Mona Lisa. You know who she is, what she is. But we're going to tell you her whole story leading up to the beginning of end of her life. Oh, she's still around. She hasn't ended, but <laughs> Claudine's going to make this multi-part. So make sure you tune in next week. And this is part number one. And I'll let Claudine take it from here. Yeah, the Mona Lisa, she obviously needs zero introduction. She's the most famous painting in the entire world. But a lot of times, because I'm giving tours of the Louvre, part of the reason I started doing research on her, and I've been doing this for about four or five months now, and now it's kind of grown into its own life of its own, the research I've done. But it's also because I talk about her all the time when I'm doing tours of the Louvre, and I kind of got so tired of talking about her that I was like, I have to learn more about her to keep it interesting for me. <laughs> yeah, because you you know a lot about her. You got to go deeper. Yeah, so it is really fascinating. And I think that this is, you know, she is also the one thing when I have people that say they don't want to go to the Louvre or people are like, oh, I just I went there once and it was so busy. I wanted to leave. Well, the reason why is because of the Mona Lisa. But that's such a very tiny part of the Louvre. And I used to just kind of, you know, of course, the first time I went there, I had to see her. But then after that, I was kind of just rolled my eyes like, oh, the Mona Lisa, until I was able to go in there one day when it was closed and get to stand in front of her with a, a good friend of mine now. And he told me a lot about the, the painting itself and Da Vinci and the techniques he did. But it gave me a whole new perspective and appreciation for her. So, but I still now, I kind of groan when people want to go see her because it's just a nightmare around there. But there's so much more to the Louvre than just her. And so I know that there's the people that want to avoid her when they go to the Louvre. But I just want, after all of this, you won't want to avoid her because it is, there's so many interesting facts about her. And the whole reason why she's famous is because she was stolen. And that's what we're going to start with. Yeah, that is something that a lot of people don't know either. Like, why do we even care about the Mona Lisa? Why is her name so famous? And it goes back to her being stolen. It was. And so this all happened. So it started. So August 21st, 1911 was the middle of a stretch of these endless 90 degree days in Paris. There was at the time um, a brigadier, Maximilien Alphonse Poporin. He was the guard in the Salon Carré of the Musée de Louvre, and he had served in the French military, but he had no idea on the morning of August 21st, 1911, that uh, what was about to happen. So in at that period of time in the Louvre, if to be a guard at the Louvre, you had to be a former military officer and a certain rank of military officer. It's not that way now. Now, I think they're just like, are you breathing? Do you barely have a pulse? We'll hire you to sit in a room and watch the art because let me tell you, half the time they're asleep. I love that it used to be military because you're right. They are sleeping a lot in there. <laughs> there is There's times that I yell at people for touching things and I look over and the guard just looks at me like we don't really even care. <laughs> <laughs> 
1911, two paintings um, in the Louvre had been slashed by people going in there. And at the time, the Louvre decided that they needed to do something about this and to protect the to protect the art. So they wanted to have new security frames placed. And the first one that they were going to do was going to be the Mona Lisa. Now, keep in mind, at this time in 1911, the Mona Lisa, she was it wasn't that she was just, you know, some paint by numbers hanging on the wall. She was Leonardo da Vinci, which still made her be pretty amazing, but she was not at all what she was, what we see today. So at that time, the um, Gobier company was working for the Louvre. They had a contract with the Louvre to protect, um, I'm sorry, to replace the glass in the windows. And so when the Louvre decided that they wanted to have all of these um, new frames with new glass made, they decided just to, contact the same company. Most of the people that work for this company were French, except for there was one Italian guy. We'll get to him in a bit. But the Louvre was closed on Monday, August 20th, and only a handful of guards and staff had been in the Salon Carré after 10 a.m., and nothing that day seemed off. But the next day on August 21st, on Tuesday, when it reopened to the public, a artist uh, who was a copyist named Louis Barreau came into the Louvre, which he did all the time. And right at 10 a.m., he had his easel and his canvas, and he went up to the Salon Carré, and he was commissioned by somebody to do a painting of uh, the Mona Lisa, but it was a painting with, uh, you know, the painting of the Mona Lisa in the background with a woman basically using the frame and the glass of the Mona Lisa to look at her hair. That's what this painting was going to be. Wow. So he walked in there, and he set up his easel and he looked at the wall and he thought, huh, that's strange. There's a big hole here in the wall, like not a hole physically in the wall, but a painting's missing. And he knew very well what painting was missing. So the smaller Salon Carré, which is where you could go through today, which has like the 13th to 15th century Italian masters, it's a smaller room. But it um, at that time, that is where a lot of the paintings were hung. Some of the most famous paintings in the Louvre at one point were hung in this room. And back then, the paintings were hung very, very close together because you didn't have the the Louvre wasn't the Louvre gallery space as far as like the whole Louvre considered was not what it is today. So you had a lot smaller space to put everything. So a large hole of an entire painting missing should have been pretty easy to spot, but nobody noticed. So Beirut walked over to the guard, Poporan, and said, where was the Mona Lisa? So the brigadier scoffed and he said, oh, must be in the photo studio uh, because they did that all the time. They start, they'd walk into a gallery, take a painting off the wall, take it down to the studio, take pictures of it, bring it back. But they, there was no form at that point of, of making a note of saying this is what's gone. Like now today, if you go into the loop and there's a space empty on the wall, and you look on the plaque, there's a little piece of paper inserted in there and it'll say the date and who did it and where it is. So I look at those all the time and it'll say like, this is at an exhibition at the you know Army Museum or it's in restoration. But they didn't do that back then. So the brigadier thought, okay, well, whatever. I'll go down to the studio and ask, but I'm going to stop on the way and have a cigarette because he is French after all. So he goes outside takes about a 20 minute break to smoke a cigarette. And then he goes down there and then he walks in and he's like, Où est la Jaconde? and they looked at him with this look on his face and they said, well, what are you talking about? 
And then that's when he panicked. So this was noon on August 21st. And the darling of Leonardo da Vinci had been gone for two days and nobody even noticed. Two days. Wow. <laughs> that's two crazy. Days. Yeah. So as we look back on that, those few days of August 1911, it appears that it could be the most perfect crime that's ever happened. And we'll, as you'll see through the series, um, when the very upset Brigadier uh, Poperin was questioned um, about the Mona Lisa, he said, Mon Dieu, she was there Sunday night when the museum was closed. So at the end of the day, Sunday, she was there. And then Tuesday, she was gone. So in the years, he always was stationed in there. So nowadays, the guards move around, but usually you see him kind of the same section. But back then, that was his spot. He was the Salon Carré guy. That's what his spot was. So he would see everything. He'd see men bringing flowers and love letters to her. Um, they would go in there and say, you know, pledge their undying love to her. There's a story that I read about one man, they said, killed himself in front of the Mona Lisa, but I've never oh. found anything to back that up because I think if somebody killed themselves in the Louvre, I'd be able to find it in a few places, but I've never found it. But, you know, it makes the story kind of interesting. And one young German man was so devoted to her that his story spread around the world. And they actually thought of him as maybe he was one of the ones who took her. But at the time, the director of the Louvre, whose name was Théophile Omul, he was on vacation in Mexico at the time, 1911. And he was, when he was asked about it, he joked and said the theft of the Mona Lisa would be like someone stealing the towers of Notre Dame. It couldn't happen. <laughs> well, little did he know. Yeah, and he was fired from his job when he returned. So that day, on that Tuesday, um, the acting direct, acting director and the curator, the Louvre, Léonce and Benedette, contacted the Palais de Justice and to alert them of the unimaginable that had happened. And just after 1 p.m. that day, the prefect of the police, Louis Lapine, arrived at the now-closed Louvre to investigate. The theft at first was kept very quiet that day. They told the crowd and the staff that there was a water main that had broken and they had to empty the Louvre. So at first, that's what everybody thought. Um, Lapine, when he came, he brought a gentleman named Alphonse Batillon with him. And he was the chief of judicial identity. And he had been working on a new form of identifying people through fingerprints and profiling. So the entire staff was called in to be fingerprinted. But only they only took the right hand. Interesting, because it was so new. Yeah, so they didn't really know. I think they figured that maybe your left and right hand were the same. <laughs> so in searching the Louvre, the newly created security frame was discovered in a stairwell that was only used by the staff on Mondays. And so Lapine believed that the thief had to have had knowledge of the Louvre and had worked there. So an interrogation of the staff was launched, and it was a plumber named Jules Sauve who came up with the only clue that they would have. So on at 9 a.m. on Tuesday, he had arrived to hear someone knocking on a door at the base of a staircase leading to the Court of Sphinx, um, which is just right outside the summer apartments of Anne of Austria. The doorknob had fallen off on the outside, and the thief was trapped. So Sauve graciously opened the door with some pliers, saw the man wearing his white Louvre coat with a quick bonjour and merci. They were both on their way. And the gentleman walked out the door. So when Lapine had the plumber in for questioning, his suspicion was correct. 
He knew it must have been an inside job because the guy said he was wearing a white Louvre coat. The doorknob was then found tossed in the um, Jardin de l'Enfant, which is right outside the Louvre. But, of course, they didn't find a fingerprint on it. At the time of the theft, the Mona Lisa hung on the north wall of the Salon Carré below Veronese's wedding feast of Cana, which is now what she looks at every day. And then between a painting by Titian called The Perfect Marriage and Coraggio's Mystic Marriage, um, which ha both have a huge influence of Leonardo on them. On August 22nd, the Temps uh, newspaper broke the story. And by the next day, on the 23rd of August, the theft was the front page around the world. I love that the Mona Lisa was below that giant painting. I mean, that yeah. painting is so overbearing. <laughs> I mean, it's the biggest painting in the Louvre. It's massive. And so, you know, the way they used to hang things in the Louvre, it would it, it's really difficult. I've been into museums when they hang things so close and it's kind of hard to focus on any one thing, at least for me. I just, it's just hard to look at anything. Um, but back then, uh, back in the Louvre, they searched high and low for more evidence. The partial print on the of the left hand was found on the casing of the frame. But at the time, they had only been taking the prints from the right hand, of course. So with little to go on, the Louvre thought maybe she was gone forever. Lapine thought that maybe she was hidden in the Louvre someplace. And then somebody would just give her back. And it was just in, in a way like it was just testing them. Um, one week later, Monday, August 28th, the search of the Louvre was finished. The Louvre had been closed for the whole entire week. And on Tuesday, August 29th, 1911 at 10 a.m., the Louvre reopened its doors. There was 2,000 people waiting in line. The line was three hours long just to come into the Louvre to see the wall where she once hung. Wow, just to see the wall. Just to see the wall. And since that day, Tuesday, August 29th, nothing has changed. So she's still in the same place? No, she's in a different place. But there's still now, when you go to the Louvre, 113 years later, there's always a line. And it's basically because of that day. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, everyone knows that they have to see her. Like, that's such a part of visiting yeah. Paris. You have to see her. have to see and, her. And it's funny that that continued, like, from that yeah. time. From that moment on. And it was just to see the empty wall. So now they had this empty, you know, empty spot of the wall. There was four policemen surrounding it and six museum guards, as well as undercover agents in the crown, hoping that maybe, you know, the thief would make his return. Of the thousands of people um, that came, many of them brought notes and flowers again to leave um, on the parquet floor below her. Outside the door, trinket sellers peddled anything that they could with her image on it. And some entrepreneurial prostitutes even hid in the shadows of the uh, colonnade of the Louvre waiting for clients. I like that, the entrepreneurial. <laughs> they knew it was a busy time. They knew it was a busy time. But it's funny because, you know, they had all these like basically rogue trinket sellers selling things with her. But now you just go to the gift shop as you walk out of the Louvre because you could literally get just about anything you want with the picture of the Mona Lisa on it. Like, there's Rubik's cubes, there's umbrellas, there's bags, there's pencils, everything you would want with the Mona Lisa. That's so true. And there's still rogue people selling things. <laughs> there's still rogue people, yeah. Um, security at the Louvre 
before this was pretty laughable. Reporters hid in a sarcophagus one night overnight to test the security and even stole pieces to see if they could get away with it, which they did. When the Louvre reopened on the 29th, guests were also greeted by two very angry dogs named Jack and Milor. Um, they became um, the sidekicks of the security guards that were there. Um, when, this, when it was stolen, the poet and art critic Guillaume Apollinaire and another man, of course, Pablo Picasso, read the headlines in the paper, just like everyone else around the world. The two friends were now in a panic to rid themselves of some stolen objects that had come from the Louvre. At midnight of September 5th, the two men packed the pieces in a suitcase and worried that they'd be captured of riding the metro or a bus. They decided to walk from Montmartre down to the Seine River. Once they were afraid they thought they'd be seen, they decided to then take this heavy suitcase and walk all the way back up to Montmartre so they didn't toss these things into the Seine. Earlier that day, Apollinaire had gone to the Paris Journal to share that he may know he was being a good citizen. He said he went down there to say, I know this guy. He's been stealing things from the Louvre. Maybe you should go talk to him because he's stolen these things and he's given some of them to me. So he gave a fictional name for his friend. He called him the Baron um, Ignace uh, Dormesson. And so he said that he would take these things and he would sometimes give them to him at Picasso. So the next day on September 6th, it was on the front page and it was called The Affair of the Statuette. Um, but of course, the police also read this. They went to visit Apollinaire and arrested him, brought him in for questioning. And then they went to uh, the Boulevard to Clichy, and that is where they arrested Picasso, brought him in for questioning. And so when he got there and they asked Picasso about Apollinaire, Picasso said he didn't know who he was and he never met him in his life. So Picasso was left. He got to go home. And Apollinaire stayed in jail for over a week because, and it was the only lead and arrest the French police ever made in the theft of the Mona Lisa. That's so sad. He was just trying to help. He was just trying to help. He's being a good citizen. But the incident ruined their friendship um, of Picasso and Apollinaire. And later, Picasso said it was one of the very few regrets of his entire life that he had did that. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Which, you know, he probably has a few. He could have a few. At the start of World War One, Apollinaire decided to become a French citizen. He enlisted in the war. Um, which would last until he got hit in the head with a piece of shrapnel that tore through his helmet, almost killing him. The injury would alter his mind forever, and he died on November 9th, 1918, um, a few, just a few short days um, before the war, and he's buried at Père Lachaise. So he never knew that she was finally recovered. Spoiler alert, the Mona Lisa is recovered, as you know. <laughs> at the end of the year, the trail for the clues had gone so cold that when um, stolen, she hung on the north wall of Salon Corre. And then in February 1912, they finally decided to replace her. Um, and at this point, they paint, they uh, placed the painting by Raphael that's called the Baldessar de Castiglioni, um, which is an amazing painting. They put that in her place because he is very, he is a writer from the 16th century in 1528 he wrote a book called the uh the book of the courtesan which was filled with the stories of court life in italy that was kind of the 16th century downton abbey but he was in the very much the same pose as the mona lisa because Raphael briefly saw leonardo working on the painting 
So it was kind of perfect fitting uh, painting to add into her place. I love that. That's so interesting. And you can see of that, of course, in the Louvre. So in January 1913, when the updated catalog of the Louvre was released, Leonardo's Mona Lisa wasn't even mentioned in there that it was in the property of the collection of the Louvre. The trail had run cold um, and the case had actually been closed. They believed that she would never come home again. Dun, dun, dun. We need sound effects. We need sound effects. So the theft itself was is where it gets even better. So on a hot Sunday, August 19th, 1911, at about 4 p.m., an Italian named Vincenzo Perugia entered the Louvre, just like any other visitor. In the final moments of the museum, before it closed, the guards were ushering people out, and Perugia slid into a storage closet just off of the Salon Carré. Overnight, he stayed there with a chunk of cheese, a small bottle of wine, and some bread, and after it closed and it was dark, he worked his way over to the wall and wrestled the painting off of the wall. But because he was the one who had placed her in this new fangled uh, frame that weighed 90 pounds because it was a double frame, he had to really work to get that off of the wall. This was long before the days of cameras and alarm systems, so you could easily hide in the Louvre overnight and wander around, which would be my dream. But at 6.30 a.m. on Monday, August 20th, when the Louvre was closed to the public, Perugio in his white Louvre coat walked through the Grand Gallery into the Salle de Saint-Métier to a small staircase in the corner um, right by the edge of the Grand Gallery that was only used on Mondays by employees. When he arrived at the ground floor, the door was locked, so he used a screwdriver he brought to take her off the wall and he started working with the doorknob, but he wasn't very smart because all he did was the doorknob on the other side fell out. So then he was stuck. He couldn't get the door open. <laughs> One report stated that Perugio was also had two other men with him that hid in the Louvre that night that helped him lift it off the wall. But in my five months of research, I've only seen that mentioned once and it's never been mentioned again. Um, so he's pretty much acted alone. He did change his story later. He kept changing it, saying how he walked out and what he did, kind of made it more grandiose as he went. But he was the only one in the Louvre. Um, but he said that he even walked by the wing victory and said goodbye to her with the Mona Lisa under his arm. But that's not actually uh, what happened. So Vincenzo stayed uh, when he did take her. He after he. But Mr. Solve, the plumber, opened the door and let him out. He walked out the door. He walked out the Corps Visconti, which is right on the on the quay, which when you walk by, I'm going to do a video of walking through this whole thing um, to come out with episode two. So I'll kind of show you all of these places and post it on uh, my website. But he walked out with her underneath his under his arm, just walked right out the door. And so he was worried. So he would get stopped. So he jumped on a bus to take him home to the 10th arrondissement where he lived. He stayed in a really small apartment at number five, Rue de Hôpital Saint-Louis. He stayed there overnight and into the next morning. And on the morning of August 21st, when um, it was discovered she was gone, Vincenzo stayed home with the grand lady hiding in his closet. I love that he just took her and stuck her in the closet and was yeah. like, here we go. 
Yeah. So when the entire staff of the Louvre was called in um, the next day to be interviewed and fingerprint, Vincenzo did not show up. So the detective Lapine arrived at his tiny apartment to question the thief who let him in, slowly answered his inquiry, and Lapine left. Meanwhile, the Mona Lisa had been turned around and popped up in his closet. The apartment was like basically the size of a closet. So it wasn't like it was this vast apartment where, you know, like he, she was in a closet like two feet from the chief of police. And he basically asked him a few questions and then just left. <laughs> I mean, I feel like this happens a lot in all crime stories where they're just like, getting so much information and they're like, I don't know, this guy's crazy. Yeah, Wait, yeah this who knows. But so Perugio was worried. And so he thought, I better leave my apartment. So he left his apartment and Lisa in a case. And he w- left and went over to the Hotel Rive Gauche that's on the Rue Saint-Père in Saint-Germain. And he requested a top floor room in case he needed to make a quick escape over the rooftops. He hid away in room 603 for three days, awaiting any news of the theft to spread through Paris. Today, that is now called the Hotel Da Vinci, and you could stay there in the room where Vincenzo stayed um, with the Florentine lady. And in it, it's called the Adorers Room, and it has like copies of the Mona Lisa hanging on the wall. I had a client say that she stayed there. Um, but on Wednesday, August 23rd, the headline was international news, but not even a whisper of a suspect. So after a few days, he thought the coast was clear. He went back to his little apartment where he stayed with the Mona Lisa for 27 more months. He held on to her for a long time. Yeah. And then next week, we'll go even deeper into it and what happened and how we found her. Yeah, you guys are going to be Mona Lisa experts by the end of this. You'll have so much to tell people at dinners at the bar, you know, tell them what's all the history you learned from us. So make sure you guys tune in next week to learn more about the Mona Lisa. Thanks for listening today, guys. If you're interested in learning more about Claudine, her tours, history, and the beautiful photographs that she posts all over Instagram, tune into her website, claudinehemingway.com.